Hey, 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 Leah Pika here. Today's guest can show you the deeper, more powerful mechanics behind visual storytelling and how it applies to your data. Stay tuned to find out who's pulling back the curtain on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 67. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics, visualizations, and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to the 67th episode of the Present Beyond Measure Show, the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, storytelling, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights, data, and ideas. I have a really fantastic episode planned for you today, but first I just wanted to catch you up. I'm ramping up my speaking circuit once again. First and foremost, this month I'll be delivering my signature Pico Protocol Masterclass for a virtual event called the Young Pros for the Advertising Research Foundation. This is on July 22nd, where you'll learn my proprietary four-step methodology for designing visually compelling data stories for business meetings. It's 90 minutes packed with goodness. You do need to be a member to sign up. So I can't recommend them as a membership for professional practitioners enough. So visit the ARF.org to find out more. And psst, are you busy next Thursday, the 15th at 2 p.m. Eastern? If not, and you're looking to ratchet up your data storytelling skills a few notches, please come join me for my signature webinar, Three Keys to Overcoming Data Presentation Zombification. Ooh. And it's totally free, and you'll learn some of my top secret presentation and data viz strategies that have got me top flight marks in my analytics and digital agency days. It's fun, it's interactive, and I promise it's zombie free. Visit leahpeakacom slash three keys, the number three, to register today. And one last little plug before we get started. If you haven't heard already on the show, I am launching my very first data storytelling book. It's now slated for early 2022. Very exciting, lucky number. And if you're interested in finding out exclusive details, first looks, even some ways to participate, you can get on the waiting list at leahpika.com slash the book. And that's all of the little housekeeping stuff I wanted to get out of the way. I'm always excited to meet you, interact with you. And these are some great ways for us to get to know each other better. So as usual, I am super excited for today's guest, but in particular, I love bringing on subject matter experts who dive super deep into an area of the data presentation process. So for the last few episodes, we've been going dashboard hog wild. So I'm changing it up today with a thought leader who eats, breathes, and lives visual storytelling. Ugh. Definitely my favorite aspect about this work. This was an incredibly fascinating conversation that I hope will fire up a few new pathways for you to explore as well. And action. (music) 
Hello, today's guest is the CEO of the Visual Storytelling Institute, or VSI, a seasoned digital marketing strategist with over 20 years of experience, having worked both on the agency and the brand sides for Fortune 100 and 500 brands, such as Nokia, IBM, and American Express. At VSI, he helps brands connect better with their audiences through visual storytelling consulting, training, production, and thought leadership. He teaches brand storytelling at the University of Miami's Business School, and he has a book, Total Acuity, Tales with Marketing Morals to Help You Create Richer Visual Brand Stories. And he is the host of his own Visual Storytelling Today podcast. Fantastic. So please help me welcome our latest guest, Shlomi Ron. Hello. Thank you so much, Leah. Super excited to be here. I'm so glad to have you. So we came to know each other on LinkedIn. And, you know, when I looked and and reviewed at the kind of work that you do, you know, as you know, this show speaks to practitioners in the corporate field to present data. But what I love is that you have very specific experience in teaching brands visual storytelling. And I thought that could offer some big insights for the listeners here. So first, you know, before we dive in, I'd love to hear your origin story. Everyone loves that. So how is it you came to be in the place that you are now? What did that path look like? Yeah. So first of all, I would say all of you listening or watching is definitely pay attention to your side hustles because sometimes your big story is waiting there. That at least was in my case, as you rightly indicated, uh, I have a background in marketing, working for major brands. But throughout my career, I was always uh, nursing my sad passions and kind of landed itself in two areas. One is uh, just as a hobby. I took an interest in uh, Italian language classes. So for 10 years, every Saturday, while I was living in New York, then in San Diego, then back in New York, I would take Italian language classes. And as we kind of advanced uh, in the levels, we ditched the textbooks and start watching classic films from the 40s, the 50s. And that's where it kind of threw me on a path of interest in classic Italian cinema. I started my own blog, still live, cafepelicola.com, where I would uh, write film reviews and, and really treat it from a film spectator perspective. I'm not a, a professional critic. So that was a lot of fun just to get, uh, you know, the filmmaking language. Also ran some uh, festivals where I would curate the films and run Q&A sessions so that was one part. The other part was uh, video art. My father-in-law was one of the early pioneers of video art, Bookish Schwartz, and his video installations are collected in major museums like the Guggenheim, the Whitney, and others. So yeah, so he passed away in 2009, and since then, my wife and I managed the estate working with other galleries to preserve his legacy. So pretty much, you know, you see marketing on one hand and art or visual stories on the other. So when I relocated from New York uh, to Miami about four years ago, I figured I'd paid my dues to corporate America and I wanted to create my own imprint, so to speak. And that's where I started listening to storytelling podcasts and realized that there's a really great whole brave new world with the visual storytelling. So I started the Visual Storytelling Institute and my mission is really to bring the gospel of visual storytelling from the world of art, you know, the way Hollywood has been telling stories for eons and engaging audiences, 
and use the same principles in the context of marketing. So, Oh, that is so fantastic. We are definitely going to get along for sure. (laughs) You know, it's so funny. I also love certain Italian film, you know, when I saw that when I was over younger, uh, you know, like It's a Beautiful Life and things like that. But I too also thought I was going to be a film critic when I was young. I remember actually writing critiques of films in my diary as like a pre-teenager and they were absolutely ludicrous. However, (laughs) I think for sure when you have that deep love of cinema, especially there's something that you have intuitively in your inside of you that understands how story mechanics work and the power of them. There's a resonance there. And by the way, you, you, you might want to check, there is a famous uh, Italian actress from the 50s and 60s, Tina Pica. So I don't know oh. if you are, <laughs> if you knew that, but you, you have I heritage didn't. behind your last name. Well, it's my <laughs> ex-married's name, but I'll, I'll have to check that out. That's wonderful. Yeah, Monica Bellucci is actually my favorite Italian actress, but I'll have to look her up. So I, hel- I like to help people understand what it is your current passion is helping people do. So if you were locked in a room with one of the listeners for three hours or team, what would you help them be able to do by the time you come out of that room? Yeah, it's really depend obviously on the objective is what they're trying to accomplish. I'm getting clients from a variety of reasons. You know, typically I've created uh, my own training framework. It's called my visual story and it has three parts. The first one is story making. And it's all about really going step by step and generating their brand narrative statement. And in my book, the narrative is really your big why, why people should care in the first place. And once you have this, what I call GPS, the narrative is your GPS, you know where you're headed, what you're trying to accomplish, what emotions you want to generate, then you can move to the second phase, which is really the story visualizing. And then it's all about developing a content strategy and and creating visual stories that pretty much work as proof points to your narrative. They actually validate your narrative and give it meaning. Once we have the visual stories, then we move to the next, the last step, which is storytelling. And this is really where you learn how to communicate those visual stories across channels and stages of the bias journey. So it's really kind of end-to-end process. The story making is the brand strategy. The story visualizing is the production or the content creation. And the storytelling is actually the marketing, the distribution. I see. Okay. That process makes a lot of sense. And, you know, since this is what you live and breathe and do, I love to ask, what does story mean to you? Like, how would you describe that? Like right off the bat. Yeah. You know, I typically, when I start my introduction to visual storytelling, I go over anybody know what story mean. And, you know, you'll get a the typical answer. It's a, you know, beginning, middle and end. <laughs> and, and that's really like, where okay. it stops. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the bare bone formula or the secret formula that has been used for eons, it's setting conflict resolution. And you definitely can get other formulas much more elaborate from the fry tax pyramid to others. But, you know, no matter how you slice it, those three components needs to be there, not necessarily in the same order. You can start with the conflict and also not necessarily all explicit. So if you example using images, you have the situation where, you know, the setting 
or the conflict could be inferential, something that the user actually completed the story in their mind. So I actually talk about it. I wrote a, a very popular blog post about it. It's called Five Easy Ways uh, to Create Narrative Images. And it talks about really how can you tell a story with images by focusing on different parts on the timeline. So you can tell a story like if like actually it took place in the past or is it taking place right now or is it going to take place in the future? So depending on where you're going to place the focus on, you can actually play with the timeline. But if you ask me more kind of figuratively what story mean, I would say it's stories are stories like a mirror and in order for it to work, it needs to reflect the personal story of the audience. Oh, Say that one more time. That is very important, what you just said. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, when you think about any communication, it's a tango between I'm the brand and you are the audience. And in order for you to be completely engaged and for me to accomplish my goal, I need to hit that sweet spot that really overlap between what I want, what my brand story is all about. And what is your personal story? What is your pain points? That sweet spot, it's right in the middle. So from that aspect, when we talk about stories, in order for them to be effective, they need to mirror the personal story and ideally using the same language, the pain points that the audience is actually using to describe the problem. Because you want to reach a point where your audience thinking to themselves, and again, it could be data and storytelling, whatever story uh, genre you use, that they're going to think, wow, you know, what you're talking about here just happened to me last week. That was exactly the problem I ran across. You're talking about my story. This is my problem. So that transition point where your story stopped becoming your story as a brand, but becoming your audience story, that's what you want to achieve. I am so glad that you're framing it this way, that it's how your story is mirroring the journey of the people you're speaking to. And I'm so glad that you brought up the common answer for stories beginning, middle and end. You know, each day has a beginning, middle and end, and a meeting might have a beginning, middle and end. But that doesn't mean there's a story in there. When what you describe setting conflict resolution is so important, because for me, when I answer this question for people, a story has those parts, and it facilitates a transformation for the audience, because they're inspired to emulate the journey that you're taking them on. And, and that means making the audience you in that way. Oh, that is so powerful. So in that line, what is visual storytelling? I've heard this phrase many times, and I, I work in data storytelling, but for you, what is it and why is it so important to brands and anyone who's sharing information? Yeah, so when I started my journey four years ago, I would Google visual storytelling and I would find only references to filmmaking, graphic design, or photography. There was nothing in the context of marketing. So pretty much I had to come up with my own definition. And even so I had to write a blog post about it. And today, if you just Google visual storytelling, you'll see it right away on the number one position. So my definition is very simple. It's any marketing strategy that has uh, three components. The first one is that you use the 
three-act story structure that we talked about, standing conflict resolution. And again, not every component needs to be present. It could be inferred and not necessarily in the same order. And the second condition is that you place your customer as the hero of the story. So it's not about you, the brand. You're just the guide or, you know, the mentor along the way. And because, you know, marketers have a tendency to take all the attention with their products. <laughs> and the last part, it's pretty obvious. You want to use a visual media format to communicate your story through. So that could be images, videos, infographics, graphs, charts, things that you do. And that's pretty much why... I tend to focus on this area. And the reason for that is once you combine, you know, the power of story and the impact of visuals, you basically created a a Trojan horse that can really break through a lot of (laughs) walls. And why? Because we all wired to process, as you know, that stat has been going on (laughs) 60,000. I don't have to repeat it. Uh (laughs) So there's a lot of uh, reason, you know, why we are uh, more receptive for visual information. And two, we know that people uh, prefer to consume information that's packages stories versus uh, stats and facts. So that's why I like to use the the term visual storytelling uh, versus brand storytelling, because brand storytelling, although it just push it towards the marketing context, but it misses the visual power. And I think the visual power here is really important because brand storytelling could write a blog post and tell a story there. It's not make it, you know, powerful as a visual. And when you say visual, as opposed to just brand storytelling, you're talking about most likely imagery. It might be human or nature, things like that, maybe video, but you also spoke about data. So specific to this group, how can brands and anyone who's trying to present a story leverage their data, but in a way that inspires the emotion that is necessary to compel someone to become part of that story? Because there's this sort of, you know, limiting belief that data is inherently boring and is unable to elicit emotion from an audience, which is what you need to compel them to take action. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, before, let's say I'm a, an analyst in a large corporation and I need to prepare for a big presentation. I think, you know, the first step that I would do is def- definitely to kind of research uh, my audience and really get a sense of what they're looking for, because obviously that's going to dictate, you know, the direction of uh, the presentation. You know, try to get a sense of the, the little stories that, uh, you know, the pain points, the things that try to solve, who are the characters in, in this uh, journey that they went through. And the idea is really to, once you you get a sense of, you know, what is the big message that is trying to communicate, uh, you know, what is the core problem that they're trying to solve, how the solution looks like, uh, who are the characters, what are the stakes, if they're not solving the problem, and really providing some uh, color to even what I call... (laughs) You'll be surprised, but that's another term from uh, filmmaking, the AB roll details, which is really small details that uh, can tell a lot. You know, you'll see this in, in films where, you know, the camera is pointing to, it could be like a, a static a landscape or or focusing close up on a, an object for no other reason, just to kind of paint a picture of the space. You could use details like that, meaningful details to paint a picture in your presentation Pick the right visual graphs and and also 
I would say also before even that, you know, just think about the metaphor. What is the visual metaphor you want to use to communicate uh, your presentation? I'm, for example, when I do my presentation, I shape my slides as a gallery tour. So every slide is almost like like a room that you kind of uh, actually move from room to room. And, you know, I tend to use a lot of uh, framed visuals. So it's like artwork in a way. So that's one way if it makes sense to your context. And so... Another example is another client of ours, Cable and Wireless. It's a telecom uh, player here in, in uh, Miami that works in the Caribbean. Ask us to help them uh, communicate the business strategy in a private event to the leadership. So since they operate in the Caribbean, uh, we actually created a visual metaphor of uh, positioning the CEO as the captain of a cruise ship. And he's hopping from island to island. And yet every island is actually encountering uh, challenges and how we intend to solve them the next year. So we actually interviewed five division heads to get their pain points. And since I work with a production studio in Colombia and they're so talented, so they basically illustrated by hand the entire uh, visuals. Not only that, they created characters that looked like the presenters, like those head of division of marketing or software. So that created another emotional affinity, you know, because the audience could recognize the characters on stage and also on screen. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I would say definitely, and, and the last part that's important really is when you present numbers, really provide the backstory behind them, you know, what makes them meaningful and, and why you present them. Because, you know, data you can shape in a variety of ways to achieve different uh, goals and it's important that you provide the right stories behind the numbers. You know, this is a, there were so many points there. Oh my gosh. Especially when you talk about visual metaphors, especially around data, you know, like you said, you, you dropped a few facts that feel like they're pretty common knowledge, but I don't even know that everyone knows how much more compelling it is when you're accompanying information with a visual, like an image or a really well done graph versus text and bullet points and alone that it is many orders of magnitude higher in terms of their effect and the recall that they have on that information. So that's why I'm so glad that you're driving home the point around visuals. But I love how you just described this metaphor that was used because one of the challenges this audience faces is they have to present very complex details, concepts, analyses to a C-level or more lay audience that does not have the same grasp of the mechanics of that data, but they still want to understand what does it mean? Can it take action? So I absolutely love that metaphor because A, it related it to something in the real world that they could understand, but it also brought it home to them, to their own story. Do you have other examples of metaphors like this that you've used yeah, this is something that I've done uh, for VSI myself. And another great tip for anyone that want to get inspired by creating uh, new visual metaphors is, is really expose yourself to multiple sources of information. It could be even like in, in my story, uh, one night I watched The Daily Show. With the Daily the, Show. Uh, no? mm-hmm. yeah. and I he, love that show. <laughs> yeah, so I interviewed Jason, Jason McCannaway about his new book. And he talks about the challenges he had as an actor and he called them red lights that stopped him. And the name of the book is Green Lights, by the way. 
So if you figure out that anytime you run into a conflict, you know, you either stop not doing anything or you are sticking to your strategy or you pivot. So that, that gave me an idea to a whole blog post that I wrote about it and even some infographic around. So that was one example. Another example, you know, I read an article about uh, this rural train uh, in Canada that goes uh, around uh, different villages in the indigenous uh, people. And as it was, and their visuals were really spectacular. So it made me realize that when we talk about the the buyer's journey, it's really nothing but like a train that uh, every stop is basically another stop in the journey. So I created an Instagram live program. It's called the Brand Storytelling Train. Check it out on my IGTV section on Instagram. And what I talk there is really how can you tell different types of stories at each stage of the buyer's journey. So different stories at the awareness stage, different stories at the consideration, and so on. And it's, it was a great way to communicate. And also part of the communication piece, I actually used some visuals from TrainSpeak. So I would create like a training schedule with the live time that I'm going to start the talk typically it was 202, like a train oh, hour. Oh, <laughs> the training, training schedule. I get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah. And, and really the entire communication message was using like a train scheduling announcements and the whole thing around train context. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it, for sure. And I was able to generate even a, a nice infographic that really created the entire track of this brand storytelling train. It's it's so amazing. There, I have this aspiration to. I'm working on it. I promise, guys, that I want to collect like a library of metaphors and analogies that people have used to create some sort of relatable context around their ideas. Not only to make them more understandable, but like you said, to inject a little bit of fun. It's so hard to imagine fun while you're delivering data in a, <laughs> in a corporate meeting. But that is fun is something that keeps our attention. There's no question about that. I think that's so clever. There was a presentation I saw a very long time ago, just when my speaking career was starting by someone named in our field named Eric Peterson. If I recall, and I've seen a lot of talks since then, but I remember this talk because it was something like 10 ways managing an analytics team or building an analytics team is like basketball. And it was so clear the connections that he made in that specific example. I remember it, and I'm pretty sure that was almost 10 years ago. <laughs> so there you go. So no, you remember stuff that really sticks to you and, and speaks to you. I mean, just to extend the, the fun element you just mentioned, I think my entire philosophy is really you want to create content that doesn't feel like ads, but more as entertainment. That's where I'm coming from. So, and the reason for that, the logic is really when you communicate something that looks like fun, as you said, or entertainment, like in a video format, it could be like a short film, your audience guards are coming down because they don't feel they've been sold to. So they are much more open to process your information and and really, you know, believe, believe what you're saying. So that's the philosophy I'm using right now. And if you look at the marketplace, you'll see there's a whole 
new movement right now that market is actually moving from the classic you know 30 second commercial or just banners to more kind of a brand documentaries mm. for example okay mm-hmm. that are commissioned by major brands and uh, like you know Johnson Johnson uh, Schwab or Patagonia they all commissioning brand documentaries and actually placing the role of producers in a way so their role is to create awareness to the to the film product where the messages they basically give the filmmaker general ideas of what they're looking to have in terms of messaging but the creative freedom is really up to the filmmaker so this is making a lot of sense i remember one of the i think similar to this one of those efforts that has never left my memory was when dove did i think it was called the real beauty campaign yeah sketches i use it all the, the time. sketches <laughs> oh my god if you have not seen that yet out there, you absolutely, I'll put that link for sure. You must watch that. It was so memorable. And while I'm not necessarily a Dove customer for certain reasons, I will never forget that that company put that effort and made that connection around beauty for people. And of course, it was a beauty company, but talking about how it goes beyond being skin deep. Yeah, I use it in all my training. And basically, the interesting part here, which is also nicely connected to what we talked about, how to prepare for a presentation is Ogilvy Toronto that created this ad actually did a very comprehensive focus group uh, effort uh, before they actually created this ad. And what they found is that 98% of women that they surveyed thought that they look not as beautiful as they want to. Only 2% believe they look great. So with this tidbit, they basically created this uh, story with a big idea that you look much, uh, you're more beautiful than you think you are. (laughs) And that's the beauty of this. And again, if they didn't have this intelligence, you know, it wouldn't speak to a lot of of their target audience. And because people could see themselves mirrored in that story, yeah, that's how I feel, you know, when you look at the first part of that video, where they describe themselves very negatively in the sketch. So you could see that mirroring effect in action, pretty much. And what's amazing is you dropped a pretty staggering statistic along with that. Only 2% of women surveyed felt they were beautiful enough. But combine that with the visceral power of watching these women critique themselves and then view how others were viewing them is that I think is the sweet spot of what you're talking about. It's that perfect mix of visual story and also information, right? Yeah. And also it's a great uh, demonstration of what I call showing versus telling because you, you actually experience the big message as it's rolling out in the story they didn't tell you on bullet points or or talking head you actually experience it through the through the plot right right so one of the things i notice you talk about is story versus narrative now i might be accidentally using these interchangeably <laughs> so forgive me but i would love to know what are you how are you making that distinction yeah so M, we interrupt this interview content for a brief message brought to you by me. There's never been a more important time for presenting data accurately, confidently, and impactfully to your stakeholders and clients. 
If you're a leader or agency owner whose team is responsible for driving database decisions and keeping satisfied clients, and if you've tried other data storytelling instructors in the past who just missed the mark, I get it. With over seven years of experience training data and digital practitioners in the unique art and science of presenting data, who knows the unique challenges of this field, having been in it myself for 12 years, I'm ready to help. I offer both live, virtual, and online course offerings with ongoing learning support options that suit your organization's specific needs. Visit leahpika.com slash workshops to schedule your strategy session with me, and we'll get started on your custom training solution today. That's leahpika.com slash workshops. You know, I can give you like a, the very basic example, you know, if you think about the American dream, what is the American dream? If you work hard, you can be successful, right? So th that's the narrative statement, right? It's a wishful thinking, a position that, uh, a belief towards the future, uh, anybody can uh, pick up on it. And the story is if you take the, you know, the success story of Steve Jobs, Oprah Winfrey, these are all stories that serve as proof points to this narrative. They actually validate the American dream statement, right? So the difference is really stories are placed in the, in the past. They are using the setting conflict resolution and they're really supporting and validating the overarching narrative. The narrative is really, what is your promise? What is your brand promise? Why people should care? I call it the big why. And it's really important to know your big why because that's gonna work as almost like a compass to really direct all your stories that you're gonna tell from that point forward. Another metaphor that's been out there is Michael Margolis has used it a lot. Uh, if you know him, he uses uh, an, the, the visual of, met of a necklace. So every bead on the necklace is a story, but the necklace itself is the narrative. Oh, wow. And that is an amazing way to help us understand that <laughs> comparison. <laughs> yeah. Another way that I use also is connect the dots. You know, so like a every constellation. dot is a story and there the visual that you come up with at the end is really the narrative. You know, once you recognize this is a lion, okay, now understand. Right. So like a constellation could be another example of separate dots that connect right. to create exactly. a picture. Wow. Ooh, exactly. I'm loving this so much. <laughs> so aside from what you've worked on, have you seen an example of how a brand or company or even person has told a story, has leveraged visual storytelling in a way that made you go, wow, they nailed it. Right. Well, other than, you know, you just told my, my show with the, with the dog sketches, I would typically drop it. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's a, another one that a couple of years ago, if you remember the, it's called the Sandy Hook Promise. It was really parents of victims of the 2012 mass shooting in Connecticut. So they created a story that is extremely powerful. The big message was really uh, pay attention to early signs of the gun violence. And instead of just going with very you know boring uh, story, they use a story structure that is extremely powerful. It's called uh, the false start. Okay, and full start? False start. False start, and okay. What it means is really... You start telling a story and let your audience believe you're going to point A, but at the end, you actually 
do a twist, a surprising twist, and that, that's where your big message is actually oh, okay. I see. So, so in this, if you look it at, uh, it's called Even, and look up uh, Sandy Hook Promise. That's the nonprofit organization that's uh, behind it. And, and it's really start as a really innocent romantic story between two students in, in a high school. They're leaving messages, romantic messages on the, written on the table in the classroom. And all along, it's the same footage. The twist comes where the video changed and say, did you notice that there was a guy sitting and looking at uh, journals with uh, different guns on the side? So the guy that was really planning the, the shooting was always in the background, but you completely missed it. It's like a mag- magician that trained the eye to look somewhere else. And, and then the, so the, so the storyline works like first you see the, this innocent story between the, the boy and girl. Then there is the event, the conflict, the, where the guy actually storms into a, a classroom and starts shooting. And, and then they just do kind of a rewind and ask you, did you notice all these details? And he was always there. The guy was always there. It's the same footage. It didn't change anything. So again, it's so powerful. And it's, you know, again, a great demonstration of the principle of showing versus telling, because you you actually feel bad yourself that you didn't solve these details. You empathize. Wow, that is very powerful. I'll definitely have to look that up. So when you look at what's happening, I mean, trends are, you're probably on the cutting edge of trends. Um, the online environment for storytelling is changing so rapidly, especially with this particular year and how data <laughs> fits into that. So what has you really excited about the future of storytelling? Have you seen examples that just really like you're like, this is where everything is going. This is what is exciting. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of uh, trends that I'm, paying attention to. I think uh, one of the most important one right now is definitely, since we all kind of uh, struggling with uh, even understanding what constitutes a, a true story versus a fake story. So that's a whole, you know, Pandora box that uh, we need to figure out. <laughs> and it's not just the education, but it's also the structure of how uh, our major platforms are structured, you know, we are all kind of locked in the echo chambers. <laughs> the algorithms are continuing feeding us uh, people that uh, look like us. So that's just going to have a lot of impact on how we tell stories and how can we break the mold and really, you know, bring new audiences that not necessarily are our typical audience, but just to kind of, uh, for the sake of uh, exposing ourselves to other ideas, because I think there's a tendency to stick. It's a very it's our comfort zone to stick to what we know. And I think there's a great promise in. I think the future is going to be emergence of new uh, distribution platforms that uh, are going to break the social network uh, classic uh, mold. If you look at now, even I saw Excel has stories. How crazy is that? So it's like everybody. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> insane. I just saw this the other day. And okay. <laughs> so it just gives you an idea that all these platforms are really running out of ideas. They're just copycatting each other. You know, if it was uh, starting with uh, Snapchat, then Instagram, then Facebook, then LinkedIn, and now, you know, just productivity tools. So I think we need to refresh our 
thinking about how can we create communities of uh, shared ideas, but in a way that's are more pluralistic, that gives more voices, and also at the same time give people some ways to validate what seems to be true and what seems to be questionable. And right now we are operating in a Wild West situation where, you know, thanks to Section 230 that gives, uh, you know, the major networks no responsibility to whatever content you put on on the sites. So so that's a problem. So I think, you know, there's going to be some regulation aspects that's going to fix that. But my hope is that we're going to emerge from this 20 year of social networks and move to something different, that it's it's less reliant on, you know, the hunger of advertising to create algorithms that maximize engagement by just giving you more of the same thing or even over time to a more extreme ends. What you're saying right now is of utmost importance, and it definitely spans beyond the realm of presenting data well in meetings. I had the experience of watching The Social Dilemma this summer at the height of the election hubbub and fake news and everything. And, you know, while I'm not beyond the idea that there are people out there with nefarious intentions that, you know, do things and and curiosity and wonder is a good quality to have, what I had no idea was that essentially advertising objectives and profitability had filtered into the confirming of biases, like whereas a seed would be planted by one piece of content, that if you acknowledge that positively in any way, that you could be sent down a total rabbit hole of more information that would just continue to confirm and feed that bias without any understanding of its validity or truth. And I think that is so important. So for me, even at, you know, as I present information now, I used to just share an article on social media or present data in a meeting that I felt comfortable with. I was like, this feels true. But now I'm so careful that I check if I'm sharing something online, I go to a site called Media Bias Fact Check and I check to see which direction they lean left or right center And then what is the degree of accuracy in their reporting? And I have my own political leanings, but I really do try to have a high, at least a high level of factual reporting rating. because. And then I cite that source so people can decide for themselves if this feels like something credible because it's it's been a thing where incredibly intelligent people will find the first thing that confirms a bias and say, see, see, and and I know this is done in data in meetings as well, where we might have a landing page test and we're like, see, I knew, I knew it didn't work. And I've done that. And then I realized there might've been a glitch in my tracking or I didn't look at the full picture and thought, oh, shoot. <laughs> so it's, If I had some advice, it would be when you're looking at information online and sharing, look at different sources, see what the other side of the wall is saying, keep your options open, don't get pigeonholed into your own social rabbit hole. And same thing with data, you know, I would think it goes into building trust with an audience, right? What do you think about that? 
Yeah, no, trust is definitely a most important thing. And what a lot of thing, a lot of people don't know before you can build trust when you are looking to create a powerful presentation. The first, the most important real estate or presentation is your the first couple of minutes. And why is that? Because people, as you know, process information through three channels. The first one is the visual. And that's really what you have up on screen and also your appearance. And these these are all silent channels. You know, they read, <laughs> they see stuff, you know, your outfit, you know, your backdrop behind you. Every detail that you include there carry a meaning. It actually trigger a meaning to them. So so that's the visual level. But then there's the story, right? What the message? What are you actually telling them? So that's also important part of the storytelling that we talked about. And the last part is really the delivery, how you actually delivering. If it's a, in a written format, the language you use, if it's a, a voice, so what is your tone or voice of communicating? You know, are you passionate? Are you exact? All that. So going back to the real estate, which is our first few minutes, typically people that don't know you, they're strangers. They're going to process the information first through their emotional brain. Only after they find something really resonating in their personal story, because we are meaning seekers. We constantly try to process. It's from our early days in the caveman, trying to it's a survival mechanism to really process meaning. Is it good, neutral, or bad for me? So, <laughs> so I'm going to initially try to find, you know, counterparts in my personal story. And, and typically those counterparts are really sitting on those details, sitting on certain emotions. So, because we remember stuff that really moved us emotionally. So if, if you can trigger those emotions in your first couple of minutes of your presentation through a short story or whatever and direction you choose, First, you break the ice with the audience. You immediately create a chemistry. They already, you know, love what you are telling them. And that goes back to your comment about creating empathy through the, the process and building trust. And once they can trust you, maybe you also presented uh, your credentials. They know who you are, that you've done your job. And that ties basically to that uh, reptilian brain that is a survival mechanism that all he cares about, can I trust the presenter. And once you cover the emotional brain and the reptilian brain, you know, the trust issue, then only at the end, you know, the, the logical brain comes into play. And now they're ready to really process your actual, the meat of your presentation, you know, those logical uh, features, you know, findings that you have, things that go down to the technical part. But you first need to catch their attention by capturing the emotion. And that's really the trick with the, any visual information that you want to communicate to audiences because people are really motivated by their emotion first. That is such a good point. And oftentimes we will say, well, we want to be dispassionate. We want to make decisions in a data-driven capacity. But the reason why I've changed that in my lingo to be story-driven is because it's the stories that will eventually convince people. Because as you said, people act from an emotional place. So maybe what someone can do is tell a story that could be a customer and 
paint a picture of that journey, create empathy for them, and then step back to show just how many people or percentage of customers are being affected by this and show this is a big problem. You know, this is a, impacting our top customers, things like that. And then there's a good balance between just making it emotional, but also backing it up. Yeah. No, definitely. And this goes back to uh, what we talked about before, you know, the importance of meaning, you know, and finding what are these meanings to your audience and doing this uh, discovery research, because I use a lot of, uh, in my class, uh, the science of visual symbiotics. And it's really about the basic truth that every object around us could be sound, a physical object, carry two uh, meanings. One is the objective meaning. For example, I can see that on your left side or your right side, there's a door. I can see it as a door. And that's the objective meaning of that object, right? But it also carries a subjective meaning. And I could say this door I have seen in my last vacation, in a bed and breakfast. I had such great memories. Again, I'm bringing up emotions. Your job as a presenter or a data storyteller is really to investigate your target audience, understanding what are the subjective meanings they associate with your problem and the story that you're trying to help them solve that problem. So so when you actually present, you actually engage in exercise of mirroring back this subjective meanings through storytelling, through graphs, through charts, through stories behind the numbers. So when they hear it, again, you want to achieve that transfer when your story becomes their story. Oh my gosh, that is so powerful. One of the things I teach in my courses and workshops around how to integrate narrative arc into the structure of a presentation is to find their objections. And this is what you're talking about. It's locating those subjective meanings that people and biases that people are bringing to the table. Exactly. How are you going to address them when your data might inevitably contradict them? Right. That is fantastic. This is their echo chambers that you need to get uh, a glimpse yeah. into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so as we are closing in on the conclusion here, we have come to a segment called The Upgrade. The Upgrade is a tool, a resource, a book, something that you have found in your journey that you love, makes your work easier, that you think that the listeners might find really interesting. Yeah, so I, I can tell you that I can spend, uh, this is a, actually a great tool I'm using. Uh, you know, I call it Story Library. It's a, it's a Google Sheet that I created where I just, uh, every, every day, you know, I write a, an idea that I have that could come into fruition in a blog post, a identical podcast. So this exercise really got me thinking about great uh, ideas for infographics. And you could see it's a lot of them actually on my Instagram. And the tool that I'm using uh, the most is Canva. And and Canva is very easy and it's really plug and play, but that was, I would call this uh, my first stage in uh, transforming my ideas to visuals. The, the challenge is that uh, sometimes their clip art is really limited to the idea that you have. So as of recently, I started kind of experimenting with the uh, Adobe Sketch. And this is, I'm not a like illustrator or... <laughs> Don't have any artistic, didn't have any artistic background other than just 
communicating basic ideas that doesn't have any clip art limitation, I call it. I can create anything that I want, even though it's on a basic visual communication level, but it gives me a lot of freedom to to play around and uh, even write kind of, uh, you know, words in my own handwriting and, and kind of personalize the, the, the message this way. So I've done several of those recently. And again, it's a lot of fun because uh, it allows you to really communicate a big message in plain. Uh, it's like going back to the caveman. Right. Like the pictographs. <laughs> So that's what I've been trying to experiment with uh, lately. Oh, that is so interesting. I'll definitely, I'm a huge fan of Canva, but I'll definitely, you'll have to send me the link to your story library and I'll check out Adobe Sketch. I think that's a fantastic idea of writing down. I love relating things to mythology. I'm a, I'm a mythology buff. So I find that so many of those stories can relate to concepts that we have nowadays. And it's a great idea to just, if something pops up, just write it down, see if it can be used. All right. So this is our final question. Think very hard here and imagine this very plausible scenario. You're walking into a 30-year anniversary showing of Cinema Paradiso one of my all-time favorites, by the way, while eating a home-baked baguette when you suddenly trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. Do you remember what you're presenting about? And what advice would you give to yesterday you? Yeah, so I actually, first, my first experience uh, presenting uh, live was uh, while I was living in San Diego. And and I started taking a, joining Toastmasters because I had no experience in presenting. One of the, it's a funny story. I mean, one of the common that kept coming back is that when I present, I tend to dance around very kind of, <laughs> you know, I'm not really, it's like dancing a body movement. So I need to kind of cool it down. <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, no, keep going. <laughs> so... So that was back then, but today, you know, I think practicing before it's really important just to get uh, the most important uh, points because the way people process information is really going through uh, what they see, what they hear, and what they read. So you have three channels where people consume information. So you need to pay attention to those uh, three channels and really practice them because you know if you staying too long on a slide people get bored and uh, if you have too many things you s try to put into one slide it's gonna crash the basic idea is that people processing power is really working on a 20 percent battery on your iphone <laughs> so, <laughs> that's also a great metaphor <laughs> So plan on that, that you almost ran out of juice. <laughs> I see. Your, from the audience perspective, that is. No, that, that's a really good perspective. I, th I don't think people appreciate in general how little processing power an audience has made available in a particular moment, especially with phones and laptops nearby and smartwatches. It is a big job to try to capture people's attention. We're not gathering them around a fire pit anymore. You know, so I think that's really good advice. You know, how can you really capture them? How, what are the ways you can engage them and 
I agree. Stories are the way to do it. Yeah. I, even, you know, sometimes I actually was a, back in San Diego, I was also the president of a high-tech marketing alliance, marketing association there. And one of the presenters I invited, he used actually props, uh, those balls. Every time he communicated a point, he would throw a ball to somebody and create like a physical exchange. So that's another way to think about how not to put your audience to sleep, but by actually engaging them physically. Oh, I see. That's fantastic. Combine movement with mental. I'll have to experiment with that too. Yeah, well, ask a question. Anybody that answer it correctly, you throw the ball. Get the ball. Oh, I love that. And there's a little reward system too for paying attention. Well, Shlomi, this, unfortunately, our time has run out. I feel like we could definitely <laughs> talk at length. So tell the listeners where they can keep up with you. Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn. I'll be more than happy to connect, uh, Shlomi Ron. And I'm also on Twitter. Uh, I'm not so much on Facebook. You know, I'm trying to kind of cut down. Uh, I don't think most people here week. are. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, also check out uh, my podcast, Visual Storytelling Today, on all the podcast networks. It's uh, also on YouTube, so it's also recording on video. Other than that, my book is uh, Total Acuity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, tell us way, about that. Yeah, the, uh, the reason I picked Acuity is really, it's really the ability to perceive uh, details. And we talked a lot about details. Now we know the backstory, but the subjective and objective meanings, why they're so important, because there are really triggers of, you start with details, emotions, meaning, and then action. So if you know, if you pick the right meaningful details, you're going to get behavior change at the end of the road. So I actually wrote this book that was a little bit of break from uh, the typical business uh, format. And I used this uh, short collection of personal stories that happened to me. And each one has a a moral that has to do with visual storytelling, also supported by uh, photos with the visual principles. So you'll see a lot of the visuals along the book. And the other part of it, which is uh, also interesting, is the the cover design. I actually found the designer on Instagram of all places. And the theme was really, if you know about illuminated scripts, medieval illuminated scripts, that tradition of design that's really colorful and very elaborate. Again, it's very elaborate in details. So we created this cover that looks like an illuminated script, a medieval style with a lot of details that combine both the elements from the past and also technology elements from the present. So it was a nice interplay that I used there as well to build this visual experience. So it's a lot of fun creating it and it's available on Amazon for anyone interested. That sounds perfect for you. It's almost sounds like a parable format where you're leveraging story to tell how to tell stories yeah. with visuals, <laughs> with all these different ways of combining visuals. So I'll definitely have to pick that up. That sounds like a wonderful read. And I'll make sure that all of the links we mentioned, wow, I don't think I've ever had this many resources dropped in one show, but they'll all be on the show notes page for this episode. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. We found so much common ground here with how your work can help people understand how story influences perception and action and emotion. And I truly hope our paths cross again soon. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it again. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much for having me. 
All right, lovely listener, I truly hoped you enjoyed that insightful conversation. I know I did. To catch all of the links to register for different events and check out the resources mentioned in the episode, please visit the show notes page at leopika.com slash 067. Love to hear from you. Drop an email, leave a comment because I want to hear about the challenges you're facing, the kinds of folks you want to hear from, the big questions that you have. If you like what you've heard, please, if you are on your iPhone right now and you're in the podcast app, just hit that subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode and please leave a rating and review. They are so, so appreciated and they really help me understand that I'm doing something great that is helping you. And if you're on Spotify, hit that follow button on the podcast as well and you'll never miss an episode. And I'll leave you with today's presentation inspiration by Ira Glass. And that is, great stories happen to people who can tell them. I could not have said it better myself. When you learn to master the art and science of storytelling, especially for business, magic happens for your organization, your clients, your customers, and you, 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 you. (laughs) Not to be dramatic, but it's true. And luckily, you are in the exact right place to do that right here. Don't forget to claim your spot in my Three Keys Data Presentation webinar next Thursday, July 15th at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can go there at leahpeka.com slash three keys, the number three. I promise you, you will walk away with at least one more tool than you had before that will make you and your insights shine with your stakeholders and clients. That's it for today. Stay well, stay safe, and namaste.